One of the things that you see often in the Christmas story is uh, the Christmas story becomes very familiar to each one of us. Every year, we, we hear the same story. In fact, if you've ever taken those Christmas quizzes, you realize how much is, has come into our thinking through music or songs that isn't actually in the Bible. And oftentimes, we miss those subtle details. Well, tonight, I want to look really at a, a familiar story, you know, the wise men and the gifts that they provided Jesus at his birth or shortly following his birth. And so if you're not there or you'd like to follow along, turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. And what we want to look at tonight is the wise men's strange gift. We know there were three of them. We don't know that there were three wise men, regardless of what the Christmas carol says. We, the scriptures doesn't actually tell us that. It tells us there were three gifts. And two of those gifts made sense. The third gift on the surface doesn't make sense, but we'll, we'll show you how it does make sense. How's that for a confusing introduction? All right, so let's just dive in. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. It begs the question, who were these wise men? Well, you know, history is a little, a little murky on this. They're not really easy to identify. I mean, here in the passage, it just tells us they're, they're from the east. When you look at the, the Greek word behind magi or wise men, you'll, depending on your translation, you'll have either those two words. The Greek word it actually comes from a Persian word meaning astrologer. That doesn't necessarily help us too much. But there's been some research, historical research done that ties these very men, these magi, these wise men, all the way back to a cast of, of priests known as Chaldeans, which takes us all the way back to the Babylonian Empire. Now, those of you that are students of history understand that Babylon, and especially their wise men, their Chaldeans, their astrologers, they were the wise men in the land. They were into dreams. They were into magic. They were into astrology. Some of them were earnest seekers of truth. Some of them were just charlatans. They just tried to rob money from you, you know, doing, doing tricks and, and being greedy. You couldn't really make a blanket statement about all of them. But what is fascinating, and as it comes to the Christmas story, and as we see the way that they're, they're acting, the way that they're described in the story, it's really fascinating because if they were tied to the Babylonians, then there's a connection between these men and the book of Daniel. And we don't often think of that because the book of Daniel was written over 500 years earlier. But why do I say there's a, a tie into the book of Daniel? Well, when we look at Daniel 2.48, notice this. It says, the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator, notice that next phrase, over all the wise men. Babylon. We pull up Daniel 5.11, another verse describing Daniel's role in the kingdom. Just skip down to the bottom. It says that he made Daniel chief of the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. And so what this tells us is is that Daniel, a, a Jew in exile, was put in charge of the wise men of Babylon. And more than likely, he educated these men on who the one true God was who Yahweh was, what Yahweh's plans for the world were, what his plans for a kingdom were. And that makes sense when you look at these men and their, their desire to come to Jerusalem and worship the king of the Jews. Where did they get this from? Well, more than likely, they got it from the teaching of Daniel that had been passed on for hundreds of years in their little system 
of wise men. In fact, Daniel 7, 13 through 14, which is a revelation given to Daniel. This is what Daniel saw. He, he said, I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. And then notice this, his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away in his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. See, there was a prediction that there would be a Jewish ruler that would reign over every single nation and kingdom in the world. And not only that, if, if we had time to develop this further, you would see a prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 that actually predicted the time frame of when this ruler would enter the world. It was a, a countdown from a decree of a Persian king, and you could count it down some 400 years later, and you could understand the time frame of when this ruler would come into the world. And so there was a messianic expectation. There was a expectation, even in the Gentile world, that a ruler of the Jews would be born around this time. History even bears that out. And so these men may have had the, the benefit, and I believe they did, of this, the revelation given to Daniel about this ruler coming. But there's something else in our story here. In fact, in verse two, I think you saw it mentioned, they were following what? They were following a star. They were watching the star. And this is one of those stars. It wasn't a shooting comet. It was a star that knew how to go forward, go back, go left, go side to side, go in reverse. It could, in other words, it led them. We're going to see that in the text, especially as we jump down to verse 9. It says, when they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. We see this star is divinely guided to the very house that Jesus and his parents are now in. He's out of the stable now. This isn't the night of his birth. This is sometime later. He's out of the stable. He's out of the manger. This isn't the manger scene. This is a, a house that they're now residing in in this area. How did Herod respond? Well, Herod was the one in charge of Judea. We're going to see his response in verses three through eight, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered, verse four, all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now, for living in a day and age of messianic expectancy, he really should have known the answer to this question. This was a softball question. This was an easy question that he should have known the answer to, he had a Jewish background. He should have known where the Messiah was going to be. Well, this is an easy one to find. In fact, we're going to see that, that his uh, leaders here, as he inquires of them when the, where the Christ was to be born in verse 5, they, they take him right to chapter and verse. Of course, there weren't chapters and verses. Then they take him right to the spot in Micah's scroll. And he says, so they said to him in verse 5, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so they quote again, Micah 5.2. And then we see from the rest of the story, what does Herod do? Well, he acts like he's interested in worshiping the king. But anybody that knows history and knows the story of Herod, we know he's not actually interested, is he? In fact, he wants to take him out. He views this baby potentially as competition. But notice how he just tries to deceive the wise men. In verse seven, he says, then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them 
what time the star appeared. Now, why does he do that? We're going to learn later in the story. So he knew which babies to kill. And he did the math later on. I said, yeah, probably about two years and under, just take them all out. So he's calculating that as he's even asking this question to them. In verse eight, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring word to me that I may come and worship him also. What a liar. (laughs) What a joke. Because we're gonna see later on as we get down to verses 16 through 18, he orders the execution of these little babies. What a terrible guy. God was ahead of them, though. God knew how to save the Lord Jesus in this place. And so the star leads them, again, as we said, miraculously. And that brings us to verse 11, which all of that was really background to get to verse 11 and really the point of the message tonight. Let's read verse 11 together. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And can you tell that the mindset of these wise men is is to what? It's to worship this child. They they view him as, as a ruler, as a king, as maybe even something more than that. We don't really know, but they they fall down to worship him. I, I love the word worship. In the Greek language, it means to adore, and literally it means to throw a kiss to. Now, we do that to people that, you know, our boyfriends and girlfriends, our husbands, our wives, we, we blow them kisses. But in the culture, what it represented was, I, I am honoring you. I respect you. I, I worship you. So that's an adequate translation. But they're doing it as a token of respect to this little baby. And then the treasures they brought. And we're going to look at those. The, the video did a good job of quickly explaining those treasures. But even the treasures they brought gave us uh, an insight into their understanding of who this baby is, what these treasures represented. And again, two of them made great sense. One of them was a little odd. And we'll look at that as we go. But the first gift was gold. And if you caught it in the video, gold is representative of royalty. This is what you would give a king. This is a a kingly gift that they're giving to this little baby. Now, interesting, again, as you follow the story, which we won't tonight, Joseph has to take his family, including baby Jesus and Mary, and he has to flee to Egypt. And that probably furnished the money they needed to survive in Egypt while they were hiding out from Herod. So this gold was a very good gift, representative of royalty, but also a very practical gift, probably in their sojourn in Egypt. Then we've got frankincense, you know, not Frankenstein, but frankincense. It was a, a spice, and, and it was actually a gift that could suggest deity. It was involved in the religious worship. It represented, it was burned, and the, the smoke was representative of prayers to, to heaven. And so it kind of had this idea of deity. First two make sense. He's a king. He's the God-man. I mean, obviously, I don't know if their theology was that developed at that point, but he was the God-man, so it fit. The third gift, a little odd, because myrrh was used as a spice in the embalming of dead bodies. That's an odd gift for a baby. In fact, it would be the equivalent, I, you know, trying to make this modern day equivalent to that. It'd be like showing up at a baby shower and say, here's your diapers, okay, here's your onesies, all right, and then here's a, a gift card to the funeral home for when your baby dies, Congratulations on the baby. Just an, it's just an odd gift. It's, it's this spice to embalm the dead body. And you think, 
Did the Magi know what they were doing? Did they understand the gift they were giving? Well, again, if, if they had the revelation from Daniel, what does Daniel 9 tell us? That the Messiah would be what? Cut off. He would be cut off. He would die. And so there may have been an understanding, even in the gifts here, as they give it to Jesus. Knowing at the identity of the child, this isn't an odd gift at all. Because as we've said earlier, and as we try to preach every Sunday, this was a child that was born to die. Now, every child, every person on earth is part of that statistic. 10 out of 10 people die. But this child was born to die, and his death was going to have great significance, not only to the Magi, but everyone throughout the, 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 the time of history. His death was going to have significance. In fact, as we look at the connection between this odd gift It's the actual death of this baby that provides the means and the basis for God's gift to us, the greatest gift that he could possibly give to us. I'm just reminded of a couple of passages in the scriptures where the Bible describes something as a gift of God. One of them is Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Some of you are going to go home tonight. You're going to wake up in the morning. There are going to be gifts under the tree. By definition, the gift under the tree for you will not cost you anything, but it costs somebody else something to put it there. Hopefully, hopefully they didn't steal it. (laughs) But you know, when we talk about salvation, the reason that God can offer salvation as a free gift to you is not because you have to pay for it or you have to earn it. It's because somebody else paid for it in full. Somebody else paid the full price for you. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He paid the full price for you so that you wouldn't have to pay anything. And God is now free to offer you salvation as a gift, not because it's cheap, because it is actually completely free. Christ paid it all. And he did so by dying for your sins past, present, and future, every single one of them. And that's why you can be saved by, by grace. You can be given something that you don't deserve. Because as the next verse is going to show us, and as we talk about uh, another aspect of this free gift, Romans 6.23 is going to tell us that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So again, since the wages of sin is death, the price that needed to be paid for sin's penalty was death. Jesus paid the very wages that you and I owed. This is why anyone, as we'll see, as we've seen in the last verse and as we'll see further tonight, anyone who will simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ has their sin debt paid for. They don't have to pay anything. That's why Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 said, it's not of yourselves. It's not of good works. God the Father wants you and I to stop, to take our eyes off of our own feet and off of our own hands as it relates to get to heaven. He wants us to put our eyes on the Son, the one who died for you and rose again. That's where he wants our occupation because he's the one that paid the wages that you owed. In fact, if you got what you deserved and if I got what I deserved, we would deserve death and hell. That's what this verse says. Wages is getting something you earned or deserved. The good news of the gospel, Jesus took what you earned and deserve so that God could freely give you something that you don't deserve. That's eternal life and that's salvation. Praise God for this baby who was born to die. Praise God as the the magi give that third gift. They have at least 
God was leading them to give that gift. There's some picture there of this odd gift pointing to this incredible gift. In fact, 1 Peter 3.18 tells us that Christ also suffered once for sins. The just, that's him. He's just, he's righteous for the unjust. That's you and me. He, he suffered in our place for us on our behalf. Why? That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive by the Spirit. How can you know that you can trust in Jesus Christ? How can you bank your eternal destiny on what this man did for you? Because God raised him from the dead. He performed a miracle that's never been repeated in human history. People have been raised from the dead. We see it in the Bible, but they've never been raised from the dead to never die again. That's the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. And this is that miracle that, wants, that God wants to convince us of. Now, the question is, the gift of God, eternal life has been paid for. It's been wrapped using our modern day visual aid, and it's been offered to you. The question is, will you receive it? That's the question. God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. Contrary to popular belief, Christians are not excited to tell people they're going to hell. That's not the good news. <laughs> the good news is you don't have to go to hell. The good news is you've got a savior that did everything in your place so that you would never have to face eternal judgment. You can face and enjoy eternal life. John three sixteen says, how do you receive it? It's real simple. We, we tend to complicate it, but the word of God makes it very simple because if Jesus paid it all, what's left to do but to just respond in trust to what he's done for you. And this is what John 3, 16 tells us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. How do you believe in Jesus? You trust in him. Just like you would trust a parachute to save you. You trust in him. Just like you're trusting in a chair to hold your weight up right now. You trust a savior to save you because saviors do what by definition? They save you. What do they save you from? We just looked at it. The wages of sin is death. He's, he wants to save you from that. So you can trust in him. You can rely upon him to do that for you. In fact, when you do that, God is going to give you two promises. It's right here in this verse. Oh, look, should not perish. What's that mean? You don't have to face the death penalty. You don't have to face an eternity separate from God. Why? Because Jesus took that penalty and paid it for you. And he paid it in full. This is why he can offer you it to you as a gift, and you have everlasting life. And not to sound like a, a smarty pants, but how, how long does everlasting last by definition? I mean, it lasts forever. So if you possess something, the moment you believe that lasts forever, can you ever lose it? No, because if you could lose eternal life after 20 years, it wouldn't be too eternal. It would be 20-year life. And it's all done and guaranteed because Jesus Christ finished the work you can see this, how this odd gift, myrrh, really sets the stage and, and provides the basis and points forward to the greatest gift ever offered, which is eternal life and salvation through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 